Hello and welcome to the Managing Madrid Podcast. This is your host, Kian Sobani. It is Sunday night. We have a three-parter in store for you guys tonight. Part one, it's the post-game show for the Leganes game where Matt Wiltsey and Omar have enjoyed me to break that down. Part two, Matt Wiltsey and I discuss Takefusa Kubo's improvements as a footballer of the season, um, stemming from Matt's great article about him on managingmadrid.com. And then part three, the second edition of Village Viajes, where Grant Little profiles a different Real Madrid player every time, and this time he profiles Fede Valverde, um, his career stemming all the way from Uruguay. Um, some housekeeping, uh, we have at least two bonus shows on patreon.com slash managing, which are coming up this week. On Tuesday, we have a two-parter. On Thursday, we have the mailbag. That's the very minimum we'll do. So if you want access to that, patreon.com slash managing Madrid. As a reminder, the only free show that happens is this one. It's the weekend edition. And everything else, three, four extra bonus shows are on patreon.com slash managing Madrid. We are on a quest to get to 1,000 patrons. We are almost at 800 now. As soon as we get to 1,000, we're giving away a bunch of swag, including a signed Cristiano Ronaldo Real Madrid jersey, among other things. So make sure you're a patron ASAP to uh, get in on the action. We also wanted to give a shout out to our $10 plus patrons as follows. Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Bellaccio, Adam Dorsey, Frederick Rentakiro, Leon Stavronakis, Christian Gonzalez, Ilian Zacco, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Tyler Simon, Sad Omar, Oluwapamimo, Oladonjoy, Christian Toff, Charles Williams, Kunal Tilakar, Tarek Sphere, Marin Myrtle, Tyler Dixon, Oli Michael, Urim James, Raga Poluri, Jeff Thurston, Gary Kohut, Sujaiwani, Peña Maredisa, San Francisco Bay Area, Brandon Stevens, Catherine Fagundo, Rafael Servia, Karen Scherer, Sumanchu Singh, Brandon Powers, Nelson Masariego, Umar Mahadi, Robi Takiev, Anthony Armesto, Shabal Sharapov, Varun, Ashik Bashar, AMB6901, Faisal Hamdan, Alex Perez, excuse me, Muxi Tengo, William Merchant, Sergio Arispe, Graham Gerard, Matan Baron, Kevin Rivera, Mowgli, MJ Diego, Michael Cruchon, Zafar Chaudhuri, Keith Lizenby, Tobias Arroyo Botcher, Martin Ridman, Christian Acosta, Austin Fiori, Eloy Enriquez, Magnus Lex, Jason Fitz, Solomon Ortiz, Fabian Moreno, and Philip Hammer. Thank you guys so much for your support. And without further ado, here is part one. Let's go. Base article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. All right, welcome to part one. Managing Madrid podcast. We are recording this shortly after Real Madrid draw 2-2 against Leganes in what was their last game of the 2019-2020 La Liga season. We watched this game with extreme interest, took notes methodically, and look forward to revisiting this game as often as we can from now until the rest of our lives. Joining me to overanalyze this game is Matt Wilsey and Omarvin. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Great, great start. Great enthusiasm. <laughs> Love it. I'm, ha- I'm having a great time. Um, I barely paid attention to the game. Kian and I were tweeting over each other on the Managing Madrid account. 
And that one tweet you had, Keon, like the Michael Jordan one, I just, every time I read that, I can't stop laughing because <laughs> I, that was one of the most shameless moments in, in Madridista history where like, I, I think that was also the game where Ariola had like literally zero saves at one catch and everyone just went nuts and were like, this is it. Second coming of Casillas, Courtois should never play again. Good times, good times. I believe it was a club, the game against Club Bruges, and I I remember being at that game and people like journalists, press row, like I could see them like motioning with their hands in the air, like imitating the the Arola brings it down from the <laughs> sky. He just like palmed it like Michael Jordan. Um, yeah, the narrative shift quickly shifted from that one game to the when you fast forward the rest of the season, Courtois unbenchable. Um, I did enjoy that. The, the narrative of this game quickly focused, quickly quickly shifted from, it started as like, you know, this game that's not too engaging and, um, you know, not too exciting. And then like towards the game, like towards the end of the game, as it was starting to, to come to an end, the realization that Leganes were about to get relegated. And then this all of a sudden, all this interest and engagement uh, from Real Madrid fans just spurring Leganes to win. Was uh, was a timeline I did not expect, and my I mean, myself included. Of like, just that's what engaged us ultimately was keeping an eye on Salta and and uh, seeing and if, everyone rooting for Leganes at the end, basically. I don't. I look. It's not like people. There's going to be like one percent of people listening to this be like, "This is a Real Madrid podcast. How dare you?" <laughs> <laughs> but I'm almost certain that even Real Madrid, the players on the field, were trying to make this happen, given the way they I were mean, defending. I mean, that's certainly what it looked like after the subs came on. It was. It was. It was pretty bad. It looked basically to the point that we were trying to give them the victory. The just like in the penalties, even. I mean, look the the sequence where Lucas Vasquez just hacked. The player down the box. I think it was Jonathan Silva, and just, just lucky or unlucky for them, it was it was offside and it wasn't a penalty. Um, all right, well let's start. Let's just actually analyze the game. Um, this was a game where, thank, thankfully, Karim Benzema started and um, did not get any rest, and I was really worried he would get some rest here at the end of the season. And we got Casemiro. We got uh, well. We we pretty much got. I wouldn't say a full-strength lineup, but I mean, there's only so much you can do in that Real Madrid's quote-unquote B team is like a bunch of really, really good players. Um, and Jovic did eventually come off the bench. Brahim Diaz came off the bench. What, Matt, we'll start with you. First half, how did how did it kind of unfold for you? Yeah, uh, I think to your point earlier, Kian, I mean, this the first half was much more, was much more difficult to engage than it was in the second half. Um, I thought... Real Madrid just no real rhythm, no real flow to their game. I mean, you guys mentioned it on the on the Twitter account how just everything our transition defense, our defense period was just horrible. Um, I think Lucas Vasquez playing at the right back position. I I honestly hope I don't have to see that again. It's just he is he's not a right back. There's <laughs> there's nothing you can do or say to try and convert him into a right back. He's just his positioning one v one defending is. Oof, it's it's tough to watch sometimes, and so, um, I yeah, I honestly hope we don't have to run into that problem again. But there wasn't too much to take away from this match. Obviously, Sergio Ramos' uh, goal in the first half was really nice. Isco just probably man of the match, um, and he curled in a beautiful free kick for Ramos, who basically was free in the box. No one on. I don't really know what uh, Bustenza was doing. I mean, he kind of just let Ramos go. And so he had a free header in the box and just 
scored an easy one to make himself. I'm pretty sure he's our Pichichi for the post lockdown. Um, yeah, I believe that's true. Um, we can. So there's a few things that you said there. Um, I mean, the Ramos goal was nice. He was completely unmarked. The Lucas Vasquez's performance to me is one of the one of the main talking points. In that, we should we should note that obviously it's not his fault. It's generally not somebody's fault being being played out of position. But this is similar to but but what what we can say about Lucas Vasquez playing it right back, um, just like the last game he played right back, was that kind of some of the the gaps he had weren't really related to him being right back or right wing. It was just kind of like in the moment where he is in the position of the pitch. Just some things that um, that even if he was a right winger, he would have been criticized for. I will say that the Lucas Vasquez at right back experiment, what as we extend the sample size into something more, because we saw it last season. I believe we saw it once or twice the season before, and basically even fifteen, sixteen, I think. Yeah, it's so and and initially when he first started playing there, it was like you know there's only so much you can take away from this. It's not his position, and he's only played there once. You kind of add more and more Lucas Vasquez right right back games under the belt. And I think the theme is after all of these games over the course of these few years, it's that he is just his his mindset, his habit is he positions himself like a winger who does defensive coverage or a right back. But in this game and in other games he's played in that position, he's rarely in position as an actual right back should be. Um, and that leaves a lot of pressure on the right winger he's playing with being more conscious of that as a that his right back behind him is not always going to be there. Um, and Asensio is not a naturally necessarily gifted defender, although he has his defensive moments. And Militao, you know, was, was spread kind of thin defending some of those. So it's, for him, it's a positional thing. I will say, you know, I, I, I guess I don't like jumping on the meme bandwagon because I think at some point you just, too many people pile up on it and it's not really funny. But the... When he dribbles... You say that after you posted the gif making fun of how Lucas Vasquez was dribbling. That was you. But, that was not... That was you. <laughs> but I, to me, the way he dribbles is very similar to when I play FIFA and I'm panicking and I don't know what to do <laughs> and I just keep doing right joystick things and I just move it in random directions hoping that something happens. That's the way I feel like that's like the, he's like the real-life version of that. When he gets into so the box... He's just doing right, right joystick things and hoping that the joystick goes in the right direction and it just ultimately <laughs> usually doesn't. But yeah, I don't know. Just his crossing wasn't good. His dribbling wasn't good. Um, positioning wasn't good. I think he did have one or good, def- one or two good defensive sequences depending Brian Hill. And um, which, by the way, to our listeners, I know it's not Brian Gill. It's Brian Hill. Um, so just so you know, it's, uh, it's a very deceiving, deceiving name, but he's, he's very Spanish. Um, yeah, just his positioning wasn't good, and he that penalty it would have been a penalty if not for the offside in the seventieth minute. I think it was for sure. Yeah. So I, I, the thing with this is like equal parts funny and equal parts sad. I mean, funny for obvious reasons because Lucas has like basically turned into a meme figure, like basically a season after he arrived at Real Madrid. But I think what this does is like sure, I'm like all for like harmless banner and stuff, but I, I think this does overshadow the fact that he was a genuinely really good contributor in Real Madrid's Champions League runs. And even in those La Liga seasons, especially 2016-17, like he was a legitimately good player. He was never world-class, but he was really our best player off the bench. And he came off and made crucial contributions at those times. And even when he started, he had some really good and important moments. 
Um, yeah, it's just a little sad that, like, you know, his career at Real Madrid, you know, I don't know when he's moving on, but I think it's going to kind of end, you know, with this idea of, like, all of us seeing Lucas as a meme, and the only time we ever compliment him is to kind of, like, say, like, jokingly, he's the greatest of all time. Um, and, you know, I, I I don't think we ever actually stood back and really appreciated his peak at Real Madrid, because even then, you know, people are just like, he's an average player, you know, he's, why is he, why, why does he have so many minutes, you know? brings someone in who's better and as we see lots of these great players we've had at Real Madrid are completely unsatisfied with the backup role and they keep shifting in and out of the team and we eventually lose them and that's the value of having had someone like Lucas Vazquez who is never going to be good enough that you know if he if he's realistic about his he's not going to get mad about not starting because he knows he's not starting quality but also he was good enough that when we needed to slot him into the starting lineup, he performed, and he was great coming off the bench. And, you know, it's not like we should build a statue of him or anything, but, like, he was a legitimately good player. I think underrated ball control and dribbling in his prime, which has faded since then. And, you know, I think it would, it would, I, it would, I guess it would just be the decent thing to do, I guess, that, like, in between all these memes, like, remember that, you know, he, he legitimately had a place in his side for a reason. I don't know if we've ever, honestly, I, I don't think we've ever disagreed with that, Om. I, you know, I think we've, anytime Lucas Vasquez has deserved praise, we've, give, we've, we've given him deserved well, praise. Well, I'm not and talking I, to you guys. I'm talking, <clears throat> speaking as a whole. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not, I didn't mean to like, to make that sound like I was, I was saying that to you guys. I was just speaking like the fan base as a whole. I do think, I, I'm amazed that he's 29. I mean, that, that kind of crept up on me a little bit. The fact that he's 29, I, you know, he's you kind of think of these players as a, as kind of, it's kind of like Nacho. Nacho forever in my mind is like 21, but he's, he's up there too. I guess they came up with the same generation, but, um, you know, and this is also, I don't know how you guys felt, um, recovering this game, but games like this feel kind of similar to me to preseason or maybe even like the very, very preliminary stages of Copa del Rey when, you know, Maybe that, you know, Copa del Rey this year is a bit different because it was the one-leg games and it's t- to be taken a little bit more seriously. But kind of had that vibe of, like, either uh, something less than the Club World Championship game and something maybe around kind of like the preseason-type game where, you know, it, it it's not, not a whole lot happening. So um, Matt also mentioned... You mentioned a few things. You mentioned Isco. I think we can talk about Isco because you mentioned he may have been man of the match. I think he was awarded the de facto man of the match by um, the broadcast, whoever is in charge of giving that out. Um, you know, I thought though he had some nice strings of vertical passing, like in, in, in one sequence where he would make a really nice vertical pass, get it back and make another one, progress the ball really well. He was press resistant as he always is. Um, his passing in general was really good. Even when it was like overplayed or just missed his mark, you could see his intentions. His dribbling was great. Um, I'm not sure what else is needed to be said about Isco, but this was a really good performance from him. Great assist yeah, and to Asensio, I, I, and obviously had the assist to, to Ramos too. Yeah, and I would, I guess we could segue into Asensio and his goal. Um, took it really well. I, I think what you notice in that goal too is even before Isco gets the ball and makes the pass, Asensio gets on his horse and he starts running and he makes that he makes that run into space and so Leganes can never catch up to him and oh my I think back to what you said on the podcast I think it was last game versus Villarreal when we were talking about um, who could come in or where can we get some goals from and 
you mentioned in terms of just shot production and in terms of someone who could actually score those goals, you, you mentioned Asensio. Mm-hmm. And I think we're, we've kind of gotten uh, – the sample size is obviously still, for me, too small given his uh, comeback from injury. But, um, I mean, if you – let's say that goal versus um, Villarreal where Vinicius made that ridiculous solo run and set up Asensio, if that goal counted, today would have been his fourth. Um, in just over 300 minutes, that's four goals mm-hmm. in about averaging every 80 minutes. Plus, he had an assist in his first game. Mm-hmm. So, I think he can. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I, I don't want to hype him up here and just. I, I'm cautiously optimistic that he maybe can be that guy to bring the goals that you were mentioning. So, we we have to if we're like if I and I think this is going to be the case, right? Because Florentino Perez said it like basically out loud no big signings, we, we need him to be that player, right? Like, whether he will or not, you know, it, I guess it's worth worth discussing, but the ultimate point is that he, he has to be that player. And I think he has the potential. I think he's shown flashes. What I really like is, like, yeah, the long shots, um, you know, Asensio has that, but really how much is that going to add given just, you know, how, how, how low a chance those are of going in, even given how good he is from distance, Fine, he gives two to three extra goals a season. You know, it's it's still good. But what he can really add, and he's shown this in flashes, which Matt, you were more talking about, is he has a good late run into the box. Um, you know, in 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 a situation where he scored, that was more of like a transition situation where he runs off the shoulder, which you know I like. He made the right movement there. He's probably not going to do that as much. But against like set defenses, make those come in from the far side, make those late runs into the box. And be an extra target coming off the blind side that defenders can't see, which is essentially what he did, you know, on that Vinicius run. And, you know, he's shown that, as I said, flashes, right? He um, did that against most notably in the Champions League final in 2017. So he has that in him. It's about doing it more consciously because there's two versions of Asensio you can get. You can get, you know, the one we're talking about now or the 1819 version where we really thought Asensio was going to make that right wing role his own or left wing role because Bale. Um, and he was just passive. He he came overly deep, kept receiving the ball like he was a central midfielder and just wasn't really making that much of an impact. And so I, I think that might have also been a confidence thing. But moving forward, I think it really is about telling Asensio and Asensio himself realizing that there's a very real need in this team for goals. And looking at the players around me, I got to be one of the people chipping in. And that's not just taking long shots, but it's about using my off-the-ball movement to create quality situations and hopefully get like 10, 15 goals a season because that will end up being really valuable. That The Asensio finish, that's exactly where my mind went to, Matt, was just to think about, you know, he's just like a, you know, on his day when he's he's on and he's firing, he's a lethal finisher. Um, he's reliable too in big games as we've seen in the past. Um, I uh, I thought it'd also be good to kind of use this podcast as half of like a just kind of reflection on on the season, and and uh, we'll use the the upcoming weeks to obviously preview the city game too. But a couple of things that stood out to me when I was looking at kind of like season, like zooming out, looking at season long stats. I was curious to know, like from an expect, expected goal standpoint, if we exclude penalties who actually is behind Benzema, and it's still Sergio Ramos. His, we have Benzema at 13.9 non-expected penalty goals per game, non-penalty expected goals per game, um, or for the season, rather. Wait, and 13, yeah, I was about <laughs> to say. 
<laughs> well, if he's shooting like 300 times a game, he might get there. But um, number two for the season is Sergio Ramos. 5.2 non-penalty expected goals for the entire season. That's the second most. Wow. I mean, that's uh, to me, that just was staggering when that yeah, just... That just really popped me when I was just looking at stats before the podcast started. Um, and also just Benzema's assist numbers have been really good this season. Like, he's also creating as much as he's scoring. Not as much, but you, you get my point. Like, he's, he is far and away the best, um, best creator on the team. Tony Cruz shoots and passes and makes a lot of key passes, um, which obviously is crucial to the team's offense. But Ramos at 52 at for second place is pretty staggering. Um, then it goes Vinicius at four point three. He has three goals for the season. Um, so, but you know this is a season we re- where we really didn't have Asensio, obviously, and the little we did, he pretty much matched any numbers from from Isco, and was on course to just pretty much work his way up the ladder, and get get up to like the top three in terms of production offensively. So I'm excited if you know. I don't know how much we want to get ahead of ourselves here. Zidane said after the game, like basically, like what's going to happen until the City game from now? And he said we're going to we're going to basically turn our brain off. We're not going to talk about football. We're going to disconnect a little bit. Then we're going to rest. Then we'll we'll have plenty of time to think about City a little bit closer down closer down, closer to the to the timeline. But um, I do wonder because Om posted his like ideal lineup against Manchester City for the second leg, and it included Fede Valverde. Did it include Isco? No, it was Hazard at number ten. And did it include Asensio? No. Would would that would Asensio playing the way he's playing now, would that sway you a little bit in that if he's ready to play the full ninety there, would you would you play him there in terms in for a player who can obviously control a game, he can obviously pass. He As can in also play score. him in play him in the number ten position or like just adjust the formation and play him? I think you would adjust the formation. I mean I don't uh, I, I mean, honestly I don't know because these are some in a lot of ways these are just futile theoretical exercises that maybe don't matter but Yeah, well, I mean all of this is for our entertainment anyway. Well, to me form maybe it would matter more if like City was next week with 3 weeks um till the till the City game with players you know going to switch off mentally just because they have to given the intensity of all of this they will definitely need to rest physically as well. I don't know if form really matters that much at least in my estimation of trying to think about city and i really when it came to thinking for that lineup is really just about what is the best tactical setup to really exploit the worst things about city this season and i think for one their pressing has just been especially when it became clear that they were not going to win the title um, but even earlier it just just hasn't been the same that it's been in previous seasons you know, it was really embarrassing in the Arsenal game. You know, I mean, and they were playing for something. They were playing to, to get into the cup final and win win a trophy. And that was probably their best chance in all honesty. You know, not not saying they have no chance with the Champions League, but obviously that was a better chance. And the press on Arsenal's first goal was just a joke. Um, and I, I, I think I've seen enough times that if you can play through that first line of City pressure, you you can then attack the last line in space and they are shambolic. And alternatively, also, you can just directly try to attack the last line with vertical passes and balls over the top. But against this city in particular, um, playing calmly playing past that first line of pressure, having the quality of players to do that, and then having someone like Vinicius, you know, constantly threatening the last line to get the, get the ball to him and have him run in space 
to me, that's kind of the best way you can deal with City. And it's the best way I think you can fashion lots of chances against them. Because I think my formation would even change if this was nil-nil going into the Eddie had. Because we we need one goal, but we, we need two at the minimum. And I just think the current formation no matter who you swap in and out, just isn't going to be good enough offensively. Like, I don't know if playing Asensio on the right wing, you know, as much as him making like a couple runs in the box, I don't know if that's going to change that much because I think it's partly, I think it's more a systemic and tactical issue. Um, Yeah, we we probably don't have the perfect players we want, but ultimately I think, you know, we were discussing earlier, what does Zidane need to do to improve? I think offensively his tactics are, are too much like the same. I think this system forces him to change it just because, the natural tendencies of the player, which I'm, I'm not sure I, I, you or I even kind of said what my formation was. So kind of a late time to say, but it was it was a diamond situation with Hazard playing number 10 and Vinicius and Benzema up top. But Vinicius obviously kind of being more of this left wing type thing. Um, and I just think offensively that gives us the best chance. As to Valverde and Modric, it's kind of my same thinking that I don't think form matters as much. And I just think Valverde's emphasis on more vertical positioning is is critical when considering the left side overloads we're going to have in that formation and we need someone pinning city back and i just think given his engine um he he he, you'll need someone to really do a ton of work on that right hand side when we're transitioning into a flat 442 to defend and i think valverde is just better suited for that um as opposed to modric even given that how well he's played these last few games but it was controversial um the only thing anyone ever said to that lineup i posted was that you know, Modric needed to play. Um, so I, I wouldn't be totally against it. But when it comes to starting Asensio, I think in my mind, I very much think Vinicius Benzema Hazard is probably the best way to go. And if I'm thinking of starting someone else, it might be Isco instead of Hazard. And I, I in that formation, I think the key is Vinicius because I think he almost has mm-hmm. to play the same role that Aubameyang played and that he's just on... Right, I mean, you, we all saw how high City played. So if you have someone like Vinicius with that lethal speed that can get him behind or play on the last the last man on the shoulder of the last man or the fullback, then uh, he's going to have a lot of success. And so I no, I saw that formation. I liked it. I agreed with it. Um, um but I do if, think I do think Vinicius is the key. Yeah, if if Vinicius if it isn't working right, because Keon mentioned we sort of tried that the first leg. And, you know, Vinicius didn't have his best game. Kyle Walker handled him. You know, there's there's still a question with Vinicius, right? Like, as well as he's playing now, he still is erratic. Is it going to work? I think simply if it's not working, you know, change and put Asensio on. Um, yeah, I, it's not like I don't see a place for Asensio, but I think you have to go in assuming that, like, you. I think you have to go in, like, having some faith in Vinicius, especially given what he's done and, like, the fact that he's, like, recovered some confidence and you know, believe that he can, he can, he can do, he, he can have a good game given that just what he provides as a player is critical to taking advantage of City. Um, and I think you go in having that faith. And then obviously if Vinicius, like if Walker is having an incredible game or Vinicius just isn't executing, you know, then you can change things. But I think this is the way to go into City and then you react later based on how certain things are going. Like if Valverde is still looking really off, which I, I don't think it's going to be the case three weeks from now. Um, then put Modric on. And, you know, I, but I, I do think the one I, the players I selected, the lineup I had, I, I think that gives us the best chance. And all of it really is related to that formation working, right? Because if we're just talking about 4 3 3, it doesn't really matter to me, Modric or Valverde, you know, 
okay, play Asensio on the right, you know, instead of Hazard or whatever. But to me, with that specific formation and everything that that means with the tendencies of the players and the goal of like quickly trying to play through City and exploit that high line, I think, I think the players like I selected, like I think it works best for that. Well, <clears throat> let's talk about Fede because I mean, we can just talk and circle back to this game. I think we'll have plenty of time to talk about Manchester City. Three weeks is a long time away. Um, I think it's going to be a lot of kind of revisiting what happened in the first leg, how Real Madrid did or didn't exploit that high line. Vinicius is an improved player since that first leg, possibly. And Kyle Walker shut him down in that first leg. And um, there's always the question, how conservative is Guardiola going to get in his head, as he does in the Champions League in past, in past years? And also kind of who's healthy, who's not. I think the case for Modric starting over Valverde in this context would be maybe above form, maybe not. But the other case would be um, it seems like rest is just good for him. So three weeks of rest would actually mean that he's probably going to be in form in that stage. But I don't know. But Fede, the reason I bring Fede up now is because, you know, he's obviously in this discussion. I thought today he actually looked closer to the Fede of before quarantine where um, Mm -hmm. he was pretty aggressive, you know, with with the way he played, he you know, was kind of tenacious, a little bit intangible stuff. But obviously the stinger long shot in the first half, he was very press resistant. His dribbling was good. Um, he and Casemiro seemed to be in sync defensively, although like the whole team kind of just melted on several transition um, sequences. But I thought he was a little bit more visible today, at least, which I thought was a good sign. Yeah, I agree. I, I had notes on Fede, and I felt like he... Uh, I mean, he had a couple runs where he just bursted down the pitch, and you, you were like, this is vintage Freddy. This is the guy I saw in the first half of the season. Uh, even late in the game, um, he, he went all the way down the right flank and tried, I think he tried to play to uh, Jovic. And no, I, I agree. I thought this was probably his best game of the post-lockdown. I thought he looked good on the ball. He was tidy in midfield. Um, he, he and Isco were some of the top top performers. Any notes on Fede, Om? Um, no, I agree with all of that. I just think <laughs> translation. I didn't know. I mean, watch this game. I mean, you guys, you guys. <laughs> I mean, that's fair, but also you guys, I think, covered pretty much everything that could be said given the context of this game and you know Real Madrid not really trying. Um, I, I think though this is why form-based discussions are only relevant for you know the next couple games, right? Because even up until this point. You know, Valverde, as you guys mentioned, it maybe looks like he's getting back to his normal self. And what three weeks does, you know, to to his form, does it cut Modric's momentum? Because form, essentially, when we're talking about form, we're really just discussing momentum, which, you know, is like a contested idea, you know, very much between like the eye test and like analyst people. Um, but I, I, I can buy into the idea that, right, like you you play a good game, you play three days later, you know, confidence building and kind of snowballs, you know. I, I just don't think it really matters. And I think, you know, the fact that, you know, Modric played so well and now Valverde's playing well, it changes so fast and over such short periods of time. I, I, I don't even know how much it matters, like, to discuss those things. And really, probably the most relevant thing will be, you know, Zidane getting these guys coming back two weeks later and seeing them in training and just making decisions based on, like, how fit they look, you know, um, just or how good they look in that training. That's probably the only form that will matter, you know, um, if, you know, that's what Zidane is going by, which I think he's probably going to go by um, just what he thinks is the best system versus City, which, as we discussed before, I think probably Isco is going to play. Um, 
And if he does, I wouldn't be surprised that he he does kind of the diamond I'm talking about, uh, but with Hazard and Benzema up top and Isco playing that number 10 role, just because I think more than anything, the most crucial thing going into that game is what is the system you think best works and who are the players that are going to execute it for you? Because I just I, I, I just generally don't see how form matters that much three weeks from now. <laughs> I have no idea either. Honestly, I, I don't think anybody knows. I think it would be naive. That's why I kind of like I think it's a little bit too soon almost to have this discussion. But um, I so there are actually interesting talking points from this game a little bit. Um, we can talk about some of the wrinkles. I mean, I maybe just get out, get out some of the Ram just stuff out of the way. Vinicius seemed a little bit quiet to me in the sense that he didn't do much and maybe not so quiet in other ways in that he actually had a lot of touches on the ball. But he and Benzema tried to kind of have sporadic kind of where they went at went at players and they just got dispossessed and it, you know, they weren't too sharp about it. But um, defensively, do you guys want to talk about, you know, kind of just what was happening in the second half? No. Not really. I mean, it was bad. Do we like, want to talk know. about the the Luka Jovic handball? Because, you know, a, that's been getting a lot of attention. And normally I don't care much to talk about the referee, but maybe in this game it's 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 fine to do so. But the Jovic handball, penalty or no? I could see it either way. Um, I mean, I, I know everyone was kind of rooting for it to be a handball by the end, but... I could have seen it either way. I, I think it, it, it's a tough call. I, I, what, what, do you, what did you guys think? I thought it could have been called. Um, I've seen them called before. Um, I think it definitely changed the trajectory of, of, the, of the, where the ball was going, obviously. Um, I'm kind of surprised it didn't get called. I, that's where I stand on this. Uh, I mean, I honestly didn't like watch it closely <laughs> enough to tell. Like, I mean, I mean, I, I, at that point, I was just, I was like everyone else rooting for Leganes, and so like I was just decided in that mind, in my mind, if everyone is saying it's a penalty, then it's a penalty. So my favorite timeline is the guy who, the guys who say that Real Madrid helped by VAR again a day after the league, <laughs> the, the, the league has already been won. Um, if I anything, someone, this is Celta. This is Celta who's been benefited from this, not not Real. I have someone who's still right now. This is like their fiftieth reply to the managing Madrid account, like showing me all these examples of how like Real Madrid like won the league through robbery. It's great. Um, so, I uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know where else to say to say about that, but um, I, I I did I did lean towards like maybe you know that that probably was a penalty, but. Um, Ewan so, is posting things now on Twitter that refer- <laughs> referees have written that this was a penalty. Ewan is uh, okay. Ewan is very much on the on the on the train of, of making sure you know the world knows about Real Madrid benefiting from the referee when it when it happens. You know, no, no, completely objective, no bias whatsoever. No, <laughs> uh, uh, no we love Ewan. Um, but since we're on the topic of Jovic, see, I was talking like semi seriously that this game do everything we can to, to help Benzema, you know, get the Pachichi. And after Messi scored two, kind of a long shot, but you never know. Just see what happens. Let Benzema take like 15 shots. You mentioned very briefly that Benzema wasn't really involved. And I guess it, it didn't seem like to me that this, that, that the team was like taking this match as kind of like, let's, let's give Benzema the Pachichi, which, you know, fine. That's completely understandable. That's not the purpose of a team. 
But if they weren't trying to do that, then why on earth did Benzema play? And why did he even play for as long as he did? If if that wasn't the point, he's played so many minutes, right? Like, Kian, you sarcastically tweeted that, like, the one regret for the season for you is that Benzema hasn't played enough because, you know, he literally has never got any rest. The only rest he got was from, you know, a worldwide pandemic. Um, why Why did he play this game? Like, I genuinely don't see the logic at all if the team wasn't trying to help him score. And, you know, maybe they maybe they were, and it just wasn't executing, but then at halftime, he should have come off, right? Like, Zidane should yeah. be like, all right, you know, whatever. Okay, it's, it's not going to happen. Let's take him off. Like, to me, that was just weird. And even, like, if you want to say Jovic wasn't ready or something, just play. You guys have talked about Asensio false nine. I'm more skeptical of it. You know, why not go with that? Literally, the result doesn't matter at all. Um, it didn't really make sense to me but you know whatever it looks no injury or whatever he came like he came out fine i uh i completely agree and so i so this this is the second time this has happened this season one was the club Bruges game where it really the the result was so inconsequential that it didn't matter if Ramjo lost or won or drew they were second place in the group no matter what and he played that game now the argument at the time that not not that anyone was presenting it to us but that we could come up with was that well? He's not. He's not in the French national team. He doesn't get all these breaks that, uh, or he doesn't have to go and play with the national team when other players do, where they could have been resting. So he gets to rest in those moments, and he wants. And Zidane wants to make sure he's he has rhythm and he gets to play. This this is obviously this situation is completely different because it's the last game of the season, and regardless of what happens, there's no way. It doesn't matter. You, you're the season's over. So like, it's not like you need rhythm right now for Manchester City, like a month away. Um, and the flip side is, it's how like how much more likely is it to get Jovic going? Is it going to be off the bench in the second half, or is it going to be a ninety-minute sample size where he can just have more time? Because the more time he gets, the more he, time he gets comfortable, the more time, the more chances he has to score. I thought that would have made more sense. I mean, if you really, really wanted to play Benzema, maybe you could have fit Jovic in there together. If you wanted Benzema, maybe to feed him some goals, that could have been an option too. Um, Again, I you know, I there's always room for criticism. I suppose this is a, this is Zidane has just won the freaking league, and I mean like to, for us to hear to kind of question certain things. I mean, and Benzema looks fine; he's looked fine, and maybe the the rest from the pandemic has helped. But it little things like this, you know, you try to you try to look at it from every possible angle, and you just this one, it, this particular one doesn't really add up about. You know, why not just give Jovic a little bit more burn? Brahim too, for that matter, if you really wanted to. Why not? Um, I mean, the Castilla Corner Twitter account was mad that that Castilla, Castilla players didn't make the squad. That I mean, that might be too far because there's actually players in this current squad that need minutes. But, yeah. but I do think Benzema playing this game didn't seem like there was much justification for it. So I don't know. Now, you might ask that Zidane that in the presser, and he, his answer would probably be something like, well, we have like three weeks to rest, so he doesn't need to rest now. He'll he'll do that in the next three weeks. But obviously, a slight ankle tweak here and there, and then obviously, there's a different there's a different question, right? Yeah. Well, and Zidane did talk about he actually did talk about Jovic in the press when he said Jovic is a very young and talented player. It has been a difficult season for him. We will see next year. So, um, I mean, for me, that that tells me that he is going to count on him next year, even though there are some rumors. Um, and hopefully we can get more out of him. What What did you guys, I mean, maybe this segues into a question because I think we do have a question on Jovic, right? Uh, are we ready to move into the questions? 
If you guys want to, does there any other burning notes you guys want to bring to the table? Uh, I guess the only other thing was I think Asensio officially has more goals than Hazard now. Um, and Bale. I've never, and Bale, yeah. Yeah, Bale has um, surpassed like basically in this first game, didn't <laughs> Or no, he, yeah. are he tied Bale or something in the first game? I don't know. It was something ridiculous. So the bar was low. It doesn't matter. Um, um, I mean, do we want to talk? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, do we want to talk about how, like, I guess dumb it was that Barcelona took Braithwaite for like basically no reason, and it probably ended up relegating Leganes. I mean, that was kind of a big talking point, like more so than the game itself. Um, yeah, I mean, Leganes got screwed in a couple ways. One, one very, very, one of them very, very unjustly, obviously. So mid-season they lost Nasiri to Sevilla, and then Braithwaite to Barcelona. And those were their two strikers. Like that, that was that was literally their their strike force just gone, just like that. Uh, and the Braithwaite one just has so many problems. I don't know how much we want to revisit it, but the fact that you know at the time it was ridiculous, now it's ridiculous. I don't know if they revised the rule yet, but um, um, recently somebody also, some team took advantage of this rule too, where um, I can't remember who which team it was now, and this is ridiculous because we talked about it on the Chulos Tacticus podcast, but. They signed someone in a completely different position than the position that of the player that got injured from, in, injured in, and so the, it was just like teams are really using this ridiculous loophole, and I think the biggest, biggest hole in this whole th- um, rule that players can sign other players in, in the event of a quote unquote emergency, where by the way Braithwaite, it's unclear still was Braithwaite uh, a Luis Suarez replacement or a Dembele replacement or something else because. Um, they they're not even really signing players for the position that that was asked of them. The fact that Leganes were not allowed to replace Braithwaite is yeah, the one that absurd. is the biggest hole in the whole the whole rule book. Is like so it just doesn't make doesn't add up. Yeah, so I mean, obviously a spectacular signing for Barcelona, just ridiculously successful. Eleven <laughs> appearances in the league, one goal, one yellow card. I mean, just stunning <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, I guess, like, it was kind of, it, to me, this whole game was funny, and like I said, I was having a great time, but it was a bit heartbreaking at the end to see just, I mean, this is something we'll never experience as Real Madrid fans, right? Like, going out of a first, you know, a f- like, a, the top flight of a league, and going into relegation, basically not knowing, you know, whether you're going to get back up, like, in any time soon and having to endure watching, you know, Segunda football for, like, the foreseeable future. Like, you know, just complete silence in, in the stadium after the game. Obviously, Real Madrid, no reason to celebrate getting a draw. And, you know, the players just devastated. It was, it, it did kind of, like, for, for a couple of seconds, kind of, like, take my high off because, you know, it's never great to see that. I mean, the only time I'm ever happy, or I ever will be happy to see a team get relegated is if that happens to Barcelona. And obviously, that'll never happen. So, well, and I mean, I guess the other big talking point, just from a Leganes perspective and a Real Madrid perspective, and uh, is obviously Oscar Rodriguez came on at halftime, first time since his injury. And he, he's been since Braithwaite's left and El Naziri that. He's the only guy that can get goals from. He's the only one that kind of produces um, major offensive contributions. And today, oh, my God, he had a couple really good long shots. And then dying minutes of the game, he uh, comes up and has that final chance. And you thought for sure he was going to I thought I was going in. top corner. Yeah. I think he was he was celebrating in his head before he shot it, and that messed things up. Yeah. I, yeah, Oscar... Um, 
I think my understanding is Villarreal is interested in him. I don't know if like there's been demonstrable interest from other clubs. I know when I did the you know uh, Q and A for the Villarreal USA blog, SB Nation, they they like asked me what I thought about him. Um, I think like that type of situation is probably like you know the ideal one for Oscar, and in, in in the sense that I think that's like a ceiling, like helping you know uh, a European contending team. You know, that yeah. that's probably like the next place for him. And, you know, I think probably he's ceiling and, you know, I could be wrong about that. But like, I think that's kind of the next step for him. And I think that'll be a good place for him to go and kind of like see, well, can he 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 had so much responsibility at Leganes and everything was going through him, you know, with that, obviously, that system not being there, can he prove that he can still like contribute in different ways? Because obviously, great set piece taker. One of Leganes' primary chance creators, one of their better dribblers, but when it comes to his passing, um, the accuracy of it, the progressive passing, you know, his defense, you know, in terms of like his successful pressures and and tackles and all of that, all of that kind of a bit lacking. Um, I think it'd be interesting to really see him at Villarreal where, you know, he's, he's contributing to something more tangible and, you know, we can really see him kind of test his limits as a player. Um, I think Villarreal would be an ideal destination for him. I think like his his ceiling is probably kind of in that in a, in, a, in a club like Villarreal that kind of mold. If he's if he's going to be a starter and a regular contributor, it's probably a, a club like that. Um, I, I'm also interested to see what happens to, to some other Leganes pieces. One player who has always stood out to me um, watching Leganes play has been Jonathan Silva, and today he was probably one of the best players on the pitch. I mean, his assist was great. He had six key passes. He's a really good two-way fullback. He's an underrated creator. Um, he's one that, that kind of popped today for me from a Leganes standpoint. Um, one thing to bring to your attention, <clears throat> I I actually don't know. I didn't check the final stats, but Arola had 100% passing accuracy in the first half on 11 passes. Um, so he's not only just Michael Jordan. He's basically Steve Nash, too. <laughs> Uh, well, he are, ha- are we? Are- yeah. Go ahead, Keon. I'm just checking his final stats. 83 percent uh, on uh, on um, on 30 passes. Pretty good. I think it. I think so, it's, I mean, based on that alone, he should be starting over Corto. But are, are we going to appreciate that he's? You know, he. I I love it when backup players play with the chip on their shoulder, and he he decided he was going to take take his level to Courtois by copying his patented. Um, you know, let the ball like go through my legs, like way of conceding like that. That was, that was I, I love to see competitiveness like that. So I think, you know, along with this passing accuracy and the fact that, you know, he's stealing Courtois moves. I think really there's there's no argument against him being the number one going into the city game. Well, maybe and that kind of leads us into the goal we conceded. Uh, one of the goals we conceded. Um, what did you guys make of that? And where do you kind of. Well, which one are you talking about? The one uh, that went through Ariola's legs. So it, the cross, I think, Keon, you said it was just Jonathan De Silva, right? Who made the cross? Uh, we kind of switched off yeah. on a free kick. Brahim's the one who's tracking back. I have no idea where Lucas Vasquez was, uh, <laughs> and he crosses it. Eder Militao is kind of out of position and just doesn't isn't aware of where his mark is and just kind of flails his leg, reaches, stretches to get it, and he just misses. And then uh, um, Nacho is covering Mark, but just he kind of turned like when he goes to make the 
tackle, he kind of turns a little bit and lifts his leg, which gives enough space for the shot to not only go under his legs, but through uh, Areola. And sure enough, like a score. So the only thing you're missing is that the XG on that goal was 0.04. So just a spectacular job all around for Real Madrid, Um, you know, from the defenders to the keeper. Um, it, It was... Some of this was a little reminiscent of how we used to defend, especially 18, 19. And, you know, the fact that we won three Champions League like this, especially the 17, 18 one, is, is remarkable to me that, you know, that those were wildly different times, you know. feels like absolutely ages ago. All right. Questions? Let's get to questions. I don't think yeah. there's anything else from this game. <laughs> Keanu's, uh, Keanu's already bored. <laughs> uh, all right. Patreon.com slash Managing Madrid if you want more bonus content. We are doing a ton of post-game, or, or sorry, basically a lot of bonus content for our patrons over at Patreon.com slash Managing Madrid. We'll continue to churn out podcasts from now until the Manchester City game. We'll have a, we're doing preview previews for that game with various other journalists. We are doing um, our season-end loan tracker on Tuesday with Matt. We're going to continue to the th- do the Thursday mailbag with Lucas. We may also do a couple historical segments from now until then on the weekend free RSS feed, so stay tuned for that. Um, a question from Ian Marley. He says, Isco was amazing today, good lord. Seems he was the only one keen on the Man City audition. Yes, we didn't play well. Towards the end of the match, I got to remember how painful it is to see the number of times Jovic creates space, running behind defenders with his teammate clearly in a position to slide him in, and they just ignore him. The number of times I've seen this, yikes. On another note, despite the giveaways, Brahim is an insanely talented dribbler. With some game time refining, he can be one of those consistently game-changing players. I love the kid. Yeah, Jovic, Jovic is... I'm interested to get your guys' take on his performance because he's still, for me, I don't know if he can be doing more himself to get involved. He only had nine touches. Brahim, who came on at the same time as him, obviously a different position, but came on at the same time as him, had 35 touches. Um, was a lot more involved. Jovic, I mean, I did think to Ian Marley's point that he did make some good runs and he did try to, um, especially in the box, he made some good runs and it just the service wasn't there. And um, we've talked about it with Jovic. It's he's very service dependent, but I still feel like he can he can get more involved in the build up play. We've seen him do well. Like he can still play that role to a degree. Um, and I just I don't know what it is. He just doesn't seem. I kind of get this vibe. I always kind of got this vibe with Bale sometimes. Um, sometimes he just doesn't click or the, the chemistry is not there with his team. It just seems isolated to the rest of the team. So I I don't know how much you can take away from this game. I, I To me, I, I don't think you can really have any takes coming well, specifically I just, from I just this. think this is the isolation thing is kind of something well, that's always no, been. No, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong, game. Matt. I'm just more like I was setting yeah. up what I was going to say, like which is pretty much mostly in agreement with you, which is that like I, I, nothing I feel about Jovic changes because of this game is essentially what I'm saying. Um, but I still do feel like, you know, you can speak to what Ian is saying here because I, I think it's simply just he hasn't got enough time to create legitimate chemistry with his teammates so that kind of like without because if you think about how the speed these players are playing at and the speed you play on top flight football you're mostly not 
making super conscious decisions like obviously you are but it's like the split second decision making as opposed to well i'm gonna pause the game and consider where jovic is running and then you know make that pass right this is a team that for basically forever is used to karim benzema as the main striker they're used to his movements they're used to the way he plays they're used to the way he solves solutions and jovic just has not had anywhere near the time for everyone on this team to get used to the way he plays. Um, and, you know, maybe Jovic can do more, um, but the the ability to which he can adapt to a system that is built for Benzema or one where Benzema exists to solve, like, you know, maybe some imperfections in the system, I think it's limited. And I think really there needs to be conscious thinking done on part of the coaching team on how we can you know, really make the best of Jovic. Because if, if this is what we're going to keep doing, which is, you know, even if we give him more minutes like next season, but just kind of put him in the same situation, I don't think it's going to be very good. And I think it's going to sort of look like what we've seen this season, which is just 10 touches a game. And, you know, he doesn't even get a chance to like create shots, um, you know, with his movement and in his shooting ability, which is what he's really good at. So, you know, it, Lack of chemistry, but ultimately, even if he plays a ton, I think there needs to be some conscious, like, tactical shifts being made to, to make the best of Jovic because he's just not the same player as Benzema. I think my stance on him is kind of the same as it's been pretty much the entire season in that um, I think you're going to have to shift the way you use him for sure, the way Om said. Uh, there were a few games where he played this season, or actually, maybe it's more important to highlight the games that he didn't play this season were actually tailor-made, some of them, for him to be in the lineup. Um, some of those games where it was just like a, a a weird weird offensive scheme where you just have a bunch of creators and no finisher just pumping the box into um, a dwarfed winger, like out, outnumbered and unmarked in the box over and over again, where at least someone like Jovic, like that's at least his, that's actually his specialty, is like his off-ball movement is, is, is amazing, um, as we saw uh, at Frankfurt anyway. So I think there there's some games that he didn't play that made too much sense for him to be there and Real Madrid drop points in those games. And then other games um he didn't, you know, he they he didn't really get involved as much. Some of that is down to him, some of that is not down to him as you guys have mentioned. Um he did play in that that wonky the first time we saw the f- wonky five center midfielder lineup against Valencia in the Super Cup. He played that game and I actually thought he played really well and that that actually really made sense for him because you have a bunch of brainiacs with the ball at their feet who can actually create chances. And once they were counter-pressing like crazy, they were getting a bunch of chances too. And I thought he played really well despite not scoring. I Basically, my stance is going to be the same uh, for a while in that he just needs time. And I I think Zidane will use him more next season, but I'm just, I, I do have a similar concern to Omen that, you know, how he's going to be used. Is it going to, is it going to be necessarily max, is it going to be necessarily maximizing his, his kind of strengths and core attributes. Um, so, but but the I just want to thing- say one more thing. Oh, I um I know this this is kind of this is a tiny sample size, and um, but you know the fact that Mariano came and scored in like one minute, um, against Clasico, and in the very very limited time he's played, it looks like he's just doing more than Jovic. I think a few people have kind mm-hmm. of noted that, and I know that we don't want to read too much into that, but that is a kind of certain hunger that that I actually really admire. And for that reason, mm-hmm. I also hadn't been bothered when Mariano kind of mops up to some of those minutes too because I kind of know just what I'm going to get from him. It's just going to be pure adrenaline and aggressiveness for like 10, 5 minutes, however long he's on the pitch. 
Um, I think Jovic kind of just needs to go into like a killer mode at some point. Mm-hmm. So the, I, that, that's, I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that's actually a good transition to what I want to say because I, I was going to talk about one thing Jovic can do. Um, I, I completely missed that. That's obviously another thing Jovic can do because Mariano is a more limited player than Jovic actually and probably just on the face of it less suited to like the Benzema role and yet he's made more of it. So that's, so that's a good point. The other thing I'd say is, you know, he... I mean, I don't like talking about this because I often feel like it's overblown, but I think he needs to get his head right off the pitch. And I think he needs to demonstrate to Zidane that, you know, he's, you know, he's he's got his head on straight, basically, and he's a professional player off the pitch. You know, he's just done some weird things that I think has probably, like, made the club, or at least Zidane, lose a little bit of confidence in him, even though they're not saying it out loud, but are kind of saying it through, like, considering, you know, loaning him out to AC Milan for two years and all of that, which is, you know breaking the COVID rules, but then somehow also like falling off the wall, you know, in his home after he was quarantined and like injuring his foot or something, just doing, you know, some stupid things that kind of signals that his focus is maybe like, you know, maybe a little elsewhere that he's just being a little too cavalier about things. And again, like, you know, with the amount of time the press talks about this, like constantly going at Bill, I'm not trying to overemphasize that and say that like, that is the reason, like, you know, start going about like, be like kind of like a Yerda figure who's like who talks about Pogba's haircuts all the time, but I, I I do think maybe some of that for Jovic has a little bit of impact when, you know, it's gonna take a lot of work from him if he wants to replace Benzema because at a certain point, right, like if Benzema's gonna keep playing like this, yeah, maybe give Jovic more minutes, but there's no reason not to stop starting Benzema if Jovic can't prove to Zidane and the coaching team that he's one going to be a better player than Benzema on the pitch, but also be a better professional. So I think along with what you were saying, Keon, as to what he can do on the pitch, I think there are also some things he can do off the pitch and kind of signal to Zidane, hey, I'm super serious about this and I- I'm going to get the starting spot. It's been a tough time, but but I will win it back and I'm going to show you this by like the way I'm acting off the pitch. Um, I-, I don't know how much you guys like kind of read into that and whether you think those are valid points or not, but like this is kind of one of the few times where I do think maybe a little bit you know, Jovic, Jovic has been a little unprofessional. I, I, I do agree with that. Um, and I think, I think you can sometimes get a better feel like, and maybe I'm totally off on this, but it seems like you can get a bit better feel from like what those in the media are saying from his home country in Serbia. And it seems like they all feel like he has this huge opportunity and he's kind of being, uh, he's, He's not recognizing just at what type of club he's at and what, like, how his actions are magnified and how everything he does is going to be under the microscope. And they're they're worried that he might be. It, it's he's too young. It's too much money. It's all this at once, and maybe it's going to his head. I hope that's not true. Um, I hope that like he kind of after this one season, he's got that hunger in him. Keon, to your point, that killer mentality now that he's going to have a chip on his shoulder and want to prove everybody wrong. Um, I hope that's what come, what happens next season, um, but I do think I do think there is a little bit of he needs to kind of make sure he gets his head on straight. He's a professional, and that he he shows the coaching staff to your point, Ohm, that he does need more minutes. He does deserve more minutes because it's going to be extremely difficult to displace Kareem Benzema. And we, I mean, yes, Kareem Benzema is getting older, but there's no guarantee that he could be. I mean, who knows? Maybe. Kareem's one of these unicorns that can last another four years at the top. 
What did you guys think of uh, Brahim's performance today? <clears throat> um, I I thought it was fine. Um, but I just I, I guess this is just a pet peeve of mine. But like Brahim here and there will get fifteen minutes, and he like tries really hard, and like often mostly meaningless like games, meaningless results, and he dribbles a bunch of players, and then I don't know. People seem to like get really hyped up about it and they're like you know Brahim's gonna be a game changer like someone said I think he's the future of our right wing better than Kubo Rodrigo Asensio um you know or the potential to be and I just I mean this is insanely small sample size you know in kind of instances where it makes sense for Brahim to kind of like force the issue every single time and like you know do what he does best which is take players on like to be absolutely honest you know I I I think Brahim is a talented player but in my opinion, I don't see any reason to really give him significant minutes over Vinicius, um, you know, Rodrigo, Asensio, Hazard. Like, I just, I mean, I've said this many times. Like, I, I don't really understand what he was doing when he left Manchester City, yeah. you know, saying he wanted minutes and came to Real Madrid. I mean, it's, I, I guess, like, I'm being a little brutal here, but I, I, I just have to be honest at this point. I, I mean... Go ahead, Matt. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I mean, I just, I... I really liked what I saw from him last season. Um, I really liked what I've seen from him in bits this season. Today, today was probably the one performance where I didn't, where I had concerns, just because I thought he really got bullied on the ball and the physical aspect of the game. That's the one thing I worry about with him. Is just he's so small that uh, in the physical aspect, he just got bullied a couple times and just knocked down so easily. And the ref's not going to call it. I mean, it's shoulder to shoulder. And so that's that's where I worry with him. Oh, I do think you make a great point. I mean, the sample size is so small. He just hasn't been given that many minutes. But when he has played, I've been really impressed. I think he does have something special to him. It's just so do all these young wingers we have. Um, I do think he's more comfortable on the right wing than uh, Vinicius or Rodrigo or maybe not Kubo, mm-hmm. but some of these other guys. I think uh, what I love about him is that he's ambidextrous. In both feet, he's just so good. And that's what... That's what really impressed me last year when he had all performances under Zidane at the tail end of the season. I mean, uh, even that goal against Real Sociedad, he just both he cuts it back and then clinically finishes. I think, I do think there is something to him. He had that little play um, by the byline in this game where he, he somehow snuck through. He does have little things every performance and he gives it his all. That's what I, I think that's what everyone likes about him. I think that's why people kind of get excited but i agree we just need to see more of him and he just he's not gonna get it here he needs to i would love to see him out on loan next season i get that but i just feel like i feel like these people like i mean i i watched like i i wrote a scouting report on him i think i watched something like 15 games he played like man city youth squad and stuff like i don't feel those people have watched those games because yes he had talent but like if we're thinking about because i have no problem with him coming off the bench and you know like providing the spark but when when I evaluate like him holistically as a player, and I just consider all the other wingers in the squad, the only one I'm really going to, I guess, Lucas Vasquez and Bale are ones I'd put him ahead of. But like one is seems like he's out the door, and if he's not, his time is up. And Lucas Vasquez is you know past it. Like if if we're like talking about like over the course of the season, like with the amount of depth we have on the wings, like is it a real travesty that you know Brahim is not getting starts? I mean, I don't think so. I think it's justified, and I think. Zidane has done actually a pretty good job of rotating people on the right wing because we've had so many troubles with it this season. I think at a certain point you have to like consider why when Zidane has been so so willing to play so many people on the right wing 
why Brahim hasn't really got the starting chance. And I think, you know, fundamentally it comes down to the fact that, yeah, he might have like these, you know, this real talent in him, but ultimately he's not more talented than, you know, the other young wingers on the squad and probably like, you know, I don't think Kubo's coming back, but let's say Kubo does next season. You know, Kubo would be ahead of Brahim in, in you know the squad depth list for me. Well, something to keep in mind when you're when you put it that way is that Brahim was not a Zidane signing. He was signed, if you remember, mm-hmm. kind of just let's put putting ourselves into time machine, bringing us back. It was after a Solari loss, I think, or a bad result, whatever it was at home, I think. Yeah, and. They announced the Brahim signing that night, and to me, it was just kind of a it way was to right distract after the everybody. Result, I think. Yeah, and it was just kind of a way seemed like a, a little bit of a kind of bias time with the fans a little bit. Brahim pushed his way to that transfer, and Real Madrid snapped him up. Pep wanted to keep him. Brahim wanted to play. He naturally came to a team at Real Madrid, where at the time Isco and Asensio were struggling to get playing time, let alone someone like Brahim. <laughs> and, um, but I think. But I think what you can what can be said is that Zidane seems to. I mean, obviously Zidane already has a bunch of players in mind ahead of him. Like he's not Brahim's not a Zidane signing again. When Zidane comes in and he sees Brahim up close, from what from what he said publicly, it seems like he's kind of been won over by by, by Brahim. But I think there's a certain point. No matter how much you're won over, I don't think you're going to leapfrog multiple players that Zidane already loves. Um, I I do like Brahim a lot. I think. At times, he is a bit tunnel vision, but he is a clear, clear line breaker, outstanding talent, and actually a really good underrated defensive winger too. Um, some interesting numbers with him, because like off the top of your head, you think that dribbling is where he does most of his damage, damage, and he is a good dribbler. Per ninety, five shot creating actions per ninety minutes, which is second on the team on the entire squad. Um, half of those come from passes; the other half comes come from fouls drawn. He gets fouled a lot, and those fouls lead to shot attempts, um, and none from dribbling, which is which kind of surprised me a little bit. I think, I think he is a really good player. I don't know. There's no part of me that thinks he's going to fail as a footballer unless he sticks around at Real Madrid too long and doesn't play too long. And by the time he actually gets to a point where he, he plays like half his career is gone, to me, I think he needs to go now. Like He needs to go... For the sake of his career, and just go somewhere and play. I think far too but often. But he doesn't want to, apparently. For some well, reason. I mean, listen. That's I guess pick your poison. I guess for him, for his perspective. I mean, I think there are certain players who will try to do that. Lucas Vasquez has done that his whole career and has made a really good career out of it. I think it re- you have to be really the, t- the the right type of player in order for that to work. Um, but I think some players just need to move on quickly. I think Brahim is one of them. Unless there's like a fire sale tomorrow and like ten wingers get sold. I don't see him, his kind of fate with Real Madrid changing much. And yeah. We also have Rainier in like the line as well. Like it's just never. I going always to forget end. about him. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to like hate on Brahim. Like I, I agree with what you guys say. Like I do think he's a good footballer. I just, I just can't fault Zidane, you know, is basically my argument. His contract doesn't expire till 2025. It's a long ways away. <laughs> Um, all right, let's take another patron question. It's from Marin Myrtle. She says, There's been a lot of talk lately about letting Ramos retire at the club, which I fully agree with, but I hope our fans realize that what that means. It means giving him the rare privilege to get worse in front of us, usually an unforgivable offense. People are quick to want a player out at the first sign of aging and then complain about letting Ronaldo go when he wasn't easy to replace. I don't know what I'm dreading more, Ramos leaving or fans turning on him because they think he selfishly stayed too long. The only players who don't fight to stay 
don't love the club as much as we want them to. And fighters like Ramos don't throw in the towel over a, fa- over a few bad games. They may not accept their own decline until long after the fans do, but we should love that about them. Look at Modric. He knew he could be better again. This probably requires reframing the way Real Madrid culture thinks about aging players. They have to decide that a declining veteran still adds value to a team. I hope that has begun already with Marcelo and Modric this season. Think of it as getting value from elite players as long as possible. It doesn't have to mean lowering the standard of a Real Madrid player. These guys are teaching the young players what the standard is. They are showing them how to get through a season like the last 12 months. When Vinicius and Rodrigo are asked who inspires them at the club, they bring up Ramos, Benzema, and Marcelo the most. Personally, I will be much more comfortable if someone like Mbappe or Haaland arrives while Ramos is running the dressing room. If we can pay for James and Bale to sit on the bench or buy Alberto Soro, who may never reach the first team, sorry Alberto, we may pay. We can pay veterans who will have much more influence on the next generation. Sorry for this essay. So we, uh, I actually talked kind of briefly about this with uh, Ruben and Sam uh, on, I think it was last week's podcast. And I, I mean, I completely agree with this. I think... I just I, I do think it's kind of sad because Marin's right. It probably will come to a point where Ramos' performances aren't as aren't as good as they are today, and fans may start to turn. And we've seen it with Marcelo, obviously. Um, and so it's that's that's kind of just the sad reality. But I do think like you you see it with Zidane knows how important it is to have those veteran presence, and Zidane constantly reiterates how important Ramos is as a leader. He constantly re- reiterates that. Um, so I'm I, I'm kind of on board with this. I mean, I think the point Ruben made was, would Ramos accept that type of role? Would he accept a backseat role once his, mm-hmm. um, like his role starts to diminish, his physical prowess starts to diminish, and he's just not the player he was? Would he accept that? I think that's the bigger question. Mm-hmm. So I this is a really good um, post. I thank Marin for it. Um, I mean, there's a number of things like what Matt was mentioning, but also this idea that Real Madrid fans. I mean, this is I mean, this is just typical of us. We we never seem to be sure exactly what we want and what are the implications of what we want. And when we talk about wanting Ramos to stay at the club, we say that I think very correctly, as Marin said, without realizing that the same people that say that are going to get extremely mad when we see Ramos. You know decline which is inevitably going to happen it's just he staved it out staved it off longer than i thought he would which as as i've mentioned so many times before i'm so grateful for um you know we we are not a patient fan base we will never we never will be um i mean the 18 19 season was not a good season lots of players underperformed but we were saying the craziest things like Kroos needs to go you know you know, Varane is like after we lost to PSG, like people were like, this is it. Varane is finished as a footballer, like just incredibly reactionary stuff. And there is no doubt in my mind that, you know, let's say two years from now, Ramos, it starts to be questionable whether he should still be an undisputed starter in this team. He will get murdered. And if we are really serious about this idea of wanting legends to retire here, we need to change our mentality and mindset as fans. Because that, that I mean, when, 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 when us as an aggregate reacts that way all the time to player performances, that, that does have an influence. And until we change that mentality, I think, it's, I don't know if it's a hypocritical, but it's a bit weird for us to desire this because our actions to, to the way, like, to, to our reaction to player performances, I think, kind of, like, tell a different story than what we kind of say when we want legends to retire all the time um 
and you know, I agree with the rest of Marin's like post. She gives really good points on like the value of keeping veteran players. The only thing for me is kind of what Matt was talking about is I agree with all of this on the caveat that these players don't block the path of younger players, right? So like I have no issue with Marcelo staying just as long as it doesn't block Regulon for coming back. Because if it comes down to the fact that Marcelo has to leave to create space for Regulon, it truly hurts me to say this. Marcelo is my favorite player, but I would take Regulon, you know, coming next season over Marcelo because I think he's a better player at this point. I think Marcelo's declined too far. And, you know, I, just given our midfield situation, I think it makes sense to hold on to Modric. But when it comes to the point that, like, maybe we, we have to put Odegaard back in the midfield, we think about Ceballos, you know, I, I don't know Modric at, like, 34, 35 years old to stand the way in that. So, it and I think Marcelo Modric might be willing to accept that. Marcelo has been really gracious. You know, no complaints for him with Mendy taking over. He was so happy when, when we won the league title. Clearly no bitterness. Like, he loves the club more than anything. And Modric has just fought and fought for his place, you know, against Valverde with no complaints whatsoever. So I don't really have issues with them. But with Ramos, very much, I have serious doubts that Ramos will look at himself and say, I'm declining as a footballer, so I'm just going to step out of the way. I just don't think that's happening. Um, I still think that issue is maybe two years down the line. I don't think that's going to happen next season. But I think that makes it very, very difficult for Ramos to retire here as opposed to someone like Marcelo and Modric, who I think you know, are more realistic in looking at themselves and probably have a little less of an ego than, than Sergio does. So this is like a slight tangent, but not really. But he posted that picture of himself on Instagram a few days ago of him just at negative body fat almost. Like it was like less than zero. And it was like... Not oh, yeah, a, that one. And he... Yeah. So he was... I mean, I just posted this on Twitter, but he's 34 in that picture one year older than Hierro was when Hierro left. And Hierro at 33 looked like he was he was just crumbling. Like his <laughs> legs were crumbling under his feet as he walked. It's just like... We've so, seen those games. <laughs> we've, yeah, we have. Unfortunately, we have. This is, a, this is a rare breed we're talking about, Sergio Ramos. You're like physically... And Ancelotti talked about this. Remember when he was coaching at the club, he said Ronaldo and Ramos are just two athletes that are so unique that they don't need rest like the others do. Um, and... I think like what Marin says here is very interesting. I also do think it, it highly depends on the situation. I think this there is no cookie cutter way to answer this and it's going to depend highly on the player, their character, how steep their decline is and how much positivity they can actually still bring to the locker room because I think once you certain you 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 pass a certain threshold of decline and your presence in the locker room, you know, players lose respect for you then it's over. Um so I think like Ramos's Ramos's decline, you know, isn't isn't steep enough or even as apparent even yet to even have that conversation right now. As Om said, probably maybe two years or so. Um, whereas other uh, someone like Raúl or Iker, who whose decline was a little bit more steep and it prolonged over the course of several years and it became politics in the locker room. That that it became apparent that that you know it was probably overdue by the time both of them actually left. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this situation, I think it's different. I mean, Modric, I think, is such a is such a character guy. Not that Raúl and Iker aren't, and you know, Raúl and Iker are both back at the club now, which is which is awesome. But Modric, I remember a, a quote from him a few years ago where he was he was talking about basically that 
this was in reference to Kovacic. He was saying, like, you know, when it's time, you know, I will step back and I will, I will take a back seat mm-hmm. and I will be Kovacic's mentor. And, I'll, and so we were all kind of looking ahead to that day where Kovacic would actually be the starter and Modric would start taking a back seat. Oh, you just made me so sad right now. <laughs> Obviously, man. that reality never came into fruition and, and maybe it happened in an alternate universe, but it never happened here. But I think that he is the type of player who would accept that role um, and, and some mm-hmm. others wouldn't. So I think it highly depends on, on the... Uh, on on the situation on and the character and and the performances of the the person on, on who's playing on in in that position of getting older but i always do kind of you know me i've i've been vocal about this i i've always leaning on the side of cutting ties a little bit too soon rather than a little bit too late um mm-hmm. certainly any discussion of Cruz leaving last season or Varane leaving last season was absurd like they're so mm-hmm. young they're just like they're still in their peak and Varane probably hasn't even entered his peak yet but but then, but then, like other, if it if you have like several years of, of bad performances by a certain player, then you definitely have that discussion. But that universe has not happened yet for for Marcelo Modric, Marcelo maybe, but Modric and and Ramos not so much. So yeah, I mean, I guess just final to, to cap this off, like a quick question to you, because this is more, I think, a thing with Marcelo, even though I think he's accepted that he's not the starter anymore. Do you see it as viable? I mean, just considering the amount of players you can have in the squad, like blah, all of that, that Regulon comes back and we, we essentially have three left backs um, and Marcelo is there, you know, to, to play more of that mentoring role. I don't know if Marcelo would accept something that extreme. I don't think Regulon like, would accept that. I don't think he's Yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing, right? So, like, if, if that's unviable, which is the only way it makes sense for me for this to work with Marcelo, as Marin is describing, then I, I'm guessing both of you say that it, it, we we trade Marcelo for Regulon, essentially, that we say goodbye to Marcelo and we bring Regulon in because that's the best thing for the team, as heartbreaking that is. It's like, I mean, that's that's probably the best way forward, right? Theoretically, yeah, but I'm not even sure if Regulon accepts that. Atrap didn't accept that. You know, like yeah. yeah, I mean let's not let's not like crush my heart even more after after we discussed Marcelo leaving and then you brought up Kovacic, like <laughs> let's let's just assume in my universe that Regulon is coming back, that like it probably makes most sense to like, you know, essentially swap them out. I just yeah, I mean I, I don't know. This is it's I don't cause Ashraf did not even accept to have to be one of two. And so maybe Regulon doesn't either. Regulon's got a pretty good yeah, gig at Sevilla right now. Let's just pretend. Let's, yeah, let's, let's pretend. Like, I think if we pretend, yeah, that would be that would be the logical solution because I don't think I think I, Marcelo I has pre- has passed the threshold now. I think uh, the thing I always bring up with Marcelo too is just the amount of muscle injuries in the past two years. Like you can't even rely on him to be consistently fit anymore, which is sad. Um, let alone just get his match match performances up to his prior level. Um, so yeah, I I would I would keep Regulon and sadly sadly move on from Marcelo but I just I don't think that's going to happen I think Zidane I think my hope is that Regulon just extends his loan at Sevilla one more year but I'm concerned that uh we might sell him hopefully with a buyback clause um and we you guys we might are speaking take this into existence speaking <laughs> this into existence this is on your shoulders now do you when, want us to fast mentioned- forward even more does Odegaard oh, accept does Odegaard accept uh, being one of two attacking midf- attacking central midfielders or attacking right wingers? Well, first let's first let's let Odegaard overcome and learn how to deal with this injury situation, and then 
you know, we'll, we'll discuss whether he'll accept coming back. Congratulations to Real Sociedad, by the way, <laughs> qualified for oh, yeah, the Europa League. <clears throat> kind of, to be honest, I mean, they they seem very happy now, but I, uh, I'm i kind of bummed. Like, the, the bar was a little bit higher for them, if you ask me. It should have been the Champions League, but given the situations after the pandemic, they, they're kind of even lucky to get to the Europa League. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, it's one of the worst collapses, like probably like with Leicester, which has kind of gone under the radar. But yeah. Anyway, um, I think it was definitely it to me. It was the worst collapse in the league in La Liga. Anyway. Yeah, it was really bad. Um, yeah. So, um, anything else before we wrap it up? We done? I think we're done. Let's do patron <laughs> shoutouts. Congrats on the ten minute pod that we planned beforehand. <laughs> I just remembered I, I already did patron shoutouts in another segment. So we don't need to do that. But um, keep it locked on managingmajor.com. We have a lot of post-game content. And we will have a lot of content moving forward from now until the City game. Stick around for part two where Matt and I talk about Takefusa Kubo. Stick around for part three where Grant Little talks about Fede Valverde. And come back Tuesday over on patreon.com slash managingmajor. We actually have two two things happening on Tuesday for our patrons. One is the season end loan track with myself and Matt and also Christopher McCormack is also going to come on the show to talk about Real Madrid's fitness coach, coach Gregory Dupont. So um, yeah, a lot of fun content coming up. So thanks so much guys. Take care. Enjoy the night and Hala Madrid. Hala Madrid. Hala Madrid. Hey. Truck to the plane, to the truck, truck to the hotel lobby. Me, I go through underground garages, presidential suite on deposit. Elevator up to the room, shower up and then we hit the club. Touchdown, gotta see what's up. Area code in my phone, what numbers do I still have? Who do I know from the past? Hit one, she say she got a man. Hit another one, it goes green. Must have changed foes on the team. Remember when you let me in between? That was 2017. We are here with the bonus segment of sorts anytime a managing Madrid art, uh, article or managing Madrid writer rather writes a knockout column I like to have said writer on the podcast to talk about said article and in this case the knockout column was written by Matt Wiltsey and is on managingmadrid.com and it's called the maturation of Takefusa Kubo at Mallorca so let's get right to it Matt Wiltsey is here how you doing Matt? Kian doing well thank you and I, I appreciate the kind words so I mean, listen, like we, we talk about Kubo a lot, generally speaking, because we cover him on the loan track. And we're going to do so again on the Tuesday show for our patrons. Um, but I, but this is a, just maybe a little bit more of a, a refined Kubo segment um, than the normal Kubo discussion. Because you wrote a little bit of, uh, kind of more into detail about his development at Mallorca. So one of the things that my favorite question I always ask uh, at the top is what made you write about this particular subject? So I had been, let's rewind back to preseason. Obviously, Kubo had some, uh, a couple, a few minutes, few cameo appearances with the first team, and everyone was really impressed. Um, I was impressed myself, but I I also didn't really get caught up in the hype. I I just was, I know you have to see a young player kind of play out, and you have to see um, over a big sample size and a stretch of games, like what they're really capable of. And so, um, I was really interested to see what would come of Kubo's time at Mallorca. And I remember thinking to myself the first few months as when we were tracking him that he really, he wasn't impressing me that much. I, I'll be honest. And I didn't like, 
he there were some good substitute appearances, a good appearance here and there. It was impactful, but overall, he couldn't break into the eleven. He was in and out of the side, and just he didn't really look like he had a foothold or anything super special about him at that time. Um, then you fast forward to around mid-February, and it was just for me night and day difference from Kubo. And like it started with that Real Betis match, which was such a fun game. Uh, and Kubo scored a goal in that game. He assisted a goal, and he created the first goal off his shot deflection. And so after that, from then on, he was just every single game playing so, so well. And I tweeted out prior to the return of La Liga that one of the loanees I'm most looking forward to returning to seeing is Kubo just because he was playing so well before the break. And sure enough, he came back and was a star again. And we've talked about it, Keon, how he's performed in all the big matches against Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Atletico Madrid. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's, to me, this was, it was it was nice to kind of follow that timeline because it, it kind of brought us back. So Because you, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, out of Mallorca's first 11 games of the season, he started, he started just three of those 11. And then he kind of got sporadic minutes coming coming in and out of other other fixture fixtures. So it was far from a prominent role. And that was not something we were expecting because, you know, we all kind of saw Kubo in preseason. We all knew how talented he was. We all knew, you know, we wanted to see him play regularly and that he wanted to, to, to go on loan and not stay with the first team. I mean, whether they would have loaned him out anyway might, may not have actually been up to him, to be honest. But we wanted to see him play week in, week out. And I think this was also around the time where, you know, it, we, we were also discussing quite heavily that it was frustrating seeing other loanees just not play. So it was also around this time where Vallejo was not really playing at um, at Granada. Um, he's, he has since since coming back from quarantine, he has played a little bit more prominently, although he didn't play against Real Madrid. Um, and, you know, um, other other examples, we have the famous Valladolid fiasco. You know, we've had other examples in the past in the past with my with Mayoral at Wolfsburg, so it was nice to see him work his way into it. And I, you know, because you brought it back full circle to say that in February, um, he made three consecutive substitute appearances, and you know that might not seem like much, but I think one of the I always like making NBA parallels. You know me, um, and but we can but this is this applies to I think any sport fringe players who play like quote-unquote garbage time in the NBA like the last like two three minutes of a game in a blowout which mean which means nothing and the only reason they're in their game is because they may not play again all season because the only reason they're playing at that moment is because the game's over they like you have to make the most of every second of any opportunity and even like if you're even if like for players the equivalent of football is if you're coming on like the 85th minute of a game that's done and dusted one easy mentality to have in that situation is to just say, well, this sucks. I'm, this is garbage time. Like, what is the point? I'm getting warmed up. All this, putting all my gear on just for five minutes of football. It's easy to fall into that trap. But rather, I think the other the mentality you actually need to have is like, how can I actually, actually like knock the socks off my manager in these five minutes? Like work extremely hard, uh, make all the right passes, make all the right plays. It may not seem like much, but those things kind of stack up, right? So Kubo makes those three consecutive appearances, and as you mentioned, he's just kind of it's 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 pretty apparent quickly that he's just too good to to stay on the bench. 
Yeah, I mean, I specifically remember that time period because he was every single team, every single time he came on the pitch, he was the most impactful player. Like it was, it was apparent, and he was he would win penalties, he would do quick one twos and um, set up either with a, like a hockey assist or actually get the assist for the goal. And um, it was so clear. I think if you remember, we were talking about because it, it was. Around that time, I think in January, when Mallorca won big versus Valencia, they won 3 nothing, and Kubo was not part of the lineup. So I think Vicente Moreno kept trying to persist with that lineup because he had great success with that one result. But it wasn't working out for them, and every time Kubo came onto the pitch, he was the best player. So then eventually, and then it's the Real Betis game where it happened, he's just decided, okay, I got to have this kid on the on the field. And sure enough, I mean, from then on, he's been an undisputed starter. He's been one of Mallorca's best players. And um, I've just been so impressed with his development this year because I've been on record saying that from August, from the start of the season to now, I think Kubo probably has taken, has developed the most of all the Lonies. That's not to say he's the best of the Lonies. It's to say that he's taken the most developmental steps and really grown as a player. Well, you also mentioned that, you know, maybe like the, the quote-unquote coming out party was the, the game against Betis on, on February 21st. So it was 3-3, he scores the goal, he assists the goal, um, and then, you know, he's it's, it's very apparent he's creating a lot of chances or at least relative to what the team, the rest of the team is doing because I think it, in one, the, one of the themes for Mallorca, since Kubo has been like de facto just in the starting lineup, has been that he is often the offensive fulcrum and something, and oftentimes nothing else is happening around him. Um, that's that's slightly unfair because I think we've all seen that they have good contributors here and there. Alex Pozo at right back is someone he links up with regularly. Um, Budimir does get does get goals. Um, so you know things do happen from time to time, but he he is often like the guy who um, who really creates everything. And in that Betis game, he was the standout. Not, as you mentioned, not Fekir, not Canales. Um, and so then, then, then he starts kind of building on that momentum. He starts getting inserted in the, in the starting lineup, and then you start getting into you know like actually being able to pl- to see him play week in week out changes everything because th- now he's playing with momentum. He can actually showcase his skills in a consistent basis he kind of he keeps adding confidence game by game and to the point where Mallorca are are really going to miss him um, I assume he's not going to be there next season because they've officially been relegated now so I mean that's another talking point for another day perhaps but um, what was it that you thought since getting inserted into the starting lineup that he brought to the table that Mallorca just didn't have without him yeah so in my article I kind of break down the things that I feel he's developed the most and the big one, which you start off with, is just his ability to attract defenders and create space in the final third. And so what he does so well, and if you look at that first clip in there, I mean, it's it's unbelievable when you watch some of them. He can attract up to three, even four defenders in a single ball-carrying sequence. So he's got four guys around him, and what he's finally starting to do now is he can f- see the the because when you have four guys around you, you, you obviously are going to have your off-ball teammates who are wide open. And Mallorca, I think they could have done a better job um, overall to get more guys into the attack. Obviously, they're a more conservative team. But if they 
when they do get numbers up there, when Kubo's ball ca- is using his ball carrying ability, um, he, he always usually has two or three guys open just because he attracts so many defenders. And so what he's done better now is he drives towards the byline and then he pulls a reverse pass, and it's usually Salva Sevilla at the top of the box uh, who can take the shot. But that's what's going to take him to the next level. If he can do that consistently, he started to add it to his game here at the end. But if he can do that consistently and identify the right pass and identify the right time to pass, because obviously you got to attract all these defenders and then find the slightest hole to feed your teammate. And he, he does that. It's, it's crazy how he can pull that off. But I think if he can do it consistently and find the right time to do it, um, then I mean, that's, he's going to be, he'll go straight to the top if he can, if he can finalize that. So that, and so that's what, um, that, that's the part of his game that really stands out to me. And I don't remember if it was before or after your, you wrote this article, but there was definitely like a, probably around the same time, maybe slightly before, I, I really started to notice that he's become really, really good at this one trait of just sucking in multiple defenders, having this gravitational pull on him where he just, he he very systematically knows like where to dribble and how to dribble. I think there's a fine line of overdoing your dribbling, obviously, and certain players understand the art of dribbling better than others. And part of the genius of players who can understand it is that they can they do it with a purpose and that they know how to unlock space for teammates. And if you do it properly, and Iniesta is a, is, is a master at this. I mean, and, and obviously on a different level, Lionel Messi is the master of masters of this. But um, he is maybe the master of masters at a lot of different facets of the game. And obviously, you you do mention Messi as a parallel, just from a stylistic perspective, with the playing on the right and he's left footed, the way his dribbling style. But Iniesta was a master of knowing exactly when to hold the ball and to release the ball. And I've, and I've mentioned this a few times. I feel like Kubo has that trait. And you brought up several clips in your article about, well, you literally just provided examples from on video, video evidence of him doing this also multiple times where um, there, were, there were cases like this against Atleti in particular, one of his standout games recently, where he's on, on that right side and Atletico, elite Atletico defense defenders, by the way, who are just kind of the best in the world at defending the flanks. Not really, they're kind of unsure like what to do without the ball because there's like three or four of them. They're kind of converging on him, but he just, he pulls it back at the right moment to find a, a free Mallorca player at the top of the box. So, I mean, that was that was definitely a part of the article that stood out. Yeah, um, if you look, if yeah. you look, um, it's not, I love that it's like, I pulled from almost every, every game since the um, since the return from the lockdown, and he's doing this consistently. Like, there's one clip where he just leaves a Levante defender and like chips it over, and the Levante defender goes for the tackle and just leaves him in the dust. Mm-hmm. And if you look, he's in terms of I I wanted to incorporate minutes played um, within these charts, but at the bottom you can see he's in the top ten for players. Uh, players dribbled pass he's in the top 10 for fouls drawn and he's in the top three for goal created actions per 90 minutes so i mean he already at his young age we're seeing him kind of influence in a mallorca a relegation battled mallorca team um was really who struggled to create anything offensively and look at the numbers he's still pulling up despite that and i kind of made the point that he's not i don't think he'll ever be a guy whose game is kind of 
predicated on goals and assists. I don't think he's ever going to be um, kind of double digit in both figures. I don't I don't know if that will ever be him. Maybe, but I, I just don't get that feeling. But I do think he should always, always top the charts for goal created actions, for key passes, for uh, progressive passes, for dribbles, for fouls drawn. Those types of figures. Um, that's where that's where he'll thrive. I think it's almost actually closer to obviously he revealed in the summer that Eden Hazard is one of his idols. I think that's more of like the type of output he'll he'll have like an Eden Hazard without penalty kicks. The, just the pure like creation standpoint, I think is is where you're getting at. I mean, Iniesta and Zidane are actually in some ways good examples of this, where Zidane in particular gets docked for not having enough goals and assists. And obviously, I'm not comparing anyone to Zidane here, but but Zidane also, you know, we didn't have the deeper analytics for him in terms of creating chances. And, you know, there, even something simple as key passes didn't exist. And I'd be curious, I mean, because the numbers you put in your article also just back up the, the sheer numbers of him being close to Messi, or at least second or third to Messi, because close to Messi only means so much because there's usually a big gap from one to two, and yeah. then it's like two, and then the, the rest are kind of conglomerated into one one part of the part of the chart but um i think in a way in a way parallel to Odegaard here is well they're not they're not that dissimilar by the way i think one of the one of the obvious similarities is you know they they also both kind of function on the right they're left footed they cut in they they're mazy dribblers they're press resistant they're good passers yeah. Um, and they have an eye for for looking for for the incisive pass and the incisive dribble. The obvious also contrast between the two is just the sheer height um, between the two, which is like it's you know one is taller, one is shorter, and so the center of gravity is a little bit different. But similar to Odegaard, you know, with Odegaard we were always curious: what does this look like on a better team? Like. What happens if you take Odegaard from here in Wien and Vitesse and put him into like a better team? Like with the jump from here in Wien to Vitesse was actually quite quite interesting. Like it, Vitesse was just obviously just straight up better. So he started to we we started to see a, a slight uptick in his numbers. Um, but then he got at Real Sociedad to Real Sociedad an even better team and it just went to another level. And you know. A lot of people will say, you know, sometimes it's hard to know if, you know, is, are you a big fish in a small pond or if you go to a bigger fish, what do you look like? The answer kind of to me with players like this is that yeah. you look, you absolutely look better because when you have better teammates contributing defensively, but also moving with better without the ball, helping you combine, link up, you have better finishes, your assist numbers go up, um, you have better creators and dribblers and kind of benefits everybody. I by default, in most cases, unless you cross 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 the threshold of having too many cooks in the kitchen, it's usually a good thing to have better teammates. So I'm curious to know if you if you get maybe a similar kind of jump like Odegaard did if you if you put Kubo in a better team. No, I complete I completely agree with that statement, Kian. I think, and you kind of already saw it with Kubo, even just in his brief cameos with Real Madrid. It's just easier to connect, quick one-two interchanges, um, even. I made the point in this article, and it kind of this is a good segue into the next section where I talk about his line-breaking vision and attacking fullback uh, dream because it's a dream for an attacking fullback. And um, like Alejandro Pozo, who's the Sevilla Loney who came in in the winter, who's been playing right back. I mean, they've been such a tandem down the right because Kubo just makes it so easy when you're attacking. Uh, we talked about it on the last loan tracker how he plays those 
passes right into your path, and he doesn't play it just down the channel. He splits two defenders and then plays it into your path. I mean, you can't, as a fullback, you can't ask for anything better than that. I actually made the parallel. I, it would have been great to see uh, Kubo and Ashraf play together because Ashraf just bombing down the right and then Kubo playing these perfectly timed defense splitting sp- passes into his path. I mean, they would have been, oof, that would have been fun to watch. It still may happen, still may happen, but um, it, it would have been really, really, really cool to see. But um, no, I think for sure, I think for sure, like even I made the point in the article that if Mallorca, obviously, they, they struggled so much with their left fullback position this year. If they had someone, like think about that Messi to Jordi Alba pass that they pull off all the time. Yeah. Kubo, Kubo always constantly cutting inside looking for that run. Um, and they just, Mallorca didn't have anyone with that type of engine or that technical ability. So he never really gets to pull off that pass, but that's something he could do with ease. I mean, that's, he would be for both the right and the left back. He's just a joy to play with. Um, the only downside probably to have an Atraf plus, uh, Kubo right flank is I don't know how that does defensively as you, 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 you talk about the defensive stuff a bit later in the article, but, um, the, you know, you did mention that fullbacks w- would enjoy playing with Kubo, and I think that's true. Um, and you know that that crossfield switch where he can kind of and Real Madrid has a lot of those. Those, by the way, I'm often surprised we don't see Real Madrid do that more. But they actually do. It's not talked about enough, and rightfully so, because it's not done nearly as much. But they have a variation of that where Real, but a, a mirrored version of that where. They they funnel everything to the left side, and then and then flip it to a to a wide open Carvajal on the diagonal switch. And Barcelona is obviously more right sided focus, although it depends on the game. But you know they 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 also go through this funnel on the right side to an extent when they have when they have Messi, Rakitic, Semedo, Vidal making those runs. Um, and so it's it's and or Sergio Roberto in in some games where they have. They have everyone on that side, and then they switch it to Alba from there. Real Madrid yeah. has a variation of that, <clears throat> but not not to that that extent. But um, the, I thought it was it was it was cool that you did bring that up. Um, <clears throat> and obviously, you know, being that Real Madrid's right side is still kind of this mis- mishmash of different different players, it's always curious to me. Um, you know, someone like Kubo, how does he fit? But he is a so. But one thing to consider is you know. Do you think it's is it time to give that non-EU spot to him now, or is it you still got to wait? Uh, yeah, so we've had this conversation. I know we we talked about it slightly on the loan tracker, and it's tough. I think it's it's a good debate because he's playing for me. He's good enough now to come back to Real Madrid and have a relevant role. I'm not saying he's going to be a starter. I'm not going to say he's going to blow us all away but he's good enough to play for Real Madrid and have a relevant role I I feel confident saying that but um is it worthwhile given that we have just the plethora of winging wings options right now and I don't know that anyone's really gonna leave Real Madrid this summer I think it's gonna be hard for people to leave um I I don't want him getting Gareth Bale minutes James minutes Brahim minutes like I'd be happy obviously if he got minutes like Rodrigo did this year. But even then, Rodrigo, I think, has barely hit the 1,000-minute mark. Kubo's played over 2,000 minutes. And that's worthwhile in the in the grand scheme of things. Like, yes, Kubo can make an impact now, but 
maybe there's not a rush. I mean, he's still not even 20 years old yet. He's 19 now, and I'd love to see him. We've talked about it, Real Sociedad, or at a, just a team that is further along in the table, maybe a team in Europe, and a team that plays fun, attacking offensive, fullba- uh, offensive football that can get the best out of him. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised, and I, I actually fully expect for him to go back out on loan, but I'm not afraid to go on record and say that I think he's good enough to play for Real Madrid now, uh, but I just I don't know if they're going to move things around. I think Zidane is clearly happy with Rodrigo, especially look how much he started in the post uh, post lockdown. Even yesterday, which is probably arguably a final for Zidane, he starts Rodrigo. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I, I don't think they're going to make any changes. And given that he's non-EU, it makes it even harder for him. So I'm always I I never actually I I was just curious to look at the actual minutes because you know. Some people would argue that, you know, playing Gareth Bale minutes wouldn't be too bad. But at the same time, you look at the final tally of Bale's minutes. He's played a thousand minutes. Kubo this season at Mallorca um, has played over 2,000 minutes. So to cut his minutes in half, and honestly, I, I honestly feel that we didn't really see enough of Kubo this season. And to cut that in half again doesn't make sense to me. Um Isco also played only a thousand minutes or so. Hazard only a thousand minutes. So the other thing to consider, actually, Hazard's minutes are going to go up next season, I assume. Yeah. So that's less minutes too. Hamez four hundred minutes. Um, again, maybe Hamez also gets four hundred minutes next season, and Bale does get a thousand minutes next season because you just can't get rid of them. So I don't, I don't see this clutter clearing anytime soon, unless you actually go through the exercise and come away with a solution in that Bale and Hamas are not in the squad next season uh, somehow. And you, but, but the other thing is, yeah, but you have to factor in this also. Asensio only played 200 minutes. He's going to play yeah. way more next season. So just, that's just simple math. It's probably not time based on that quick math we just did, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So, but, well, Kian, would yeah. you agree? Do you think... Having watched him this season, do you think he's at least good enough to have a relevant role with Real Madrid? Yeah, for sure, I do. I, I really do. I think, I think he's, I think he's, he has this, the ceiling and the potential to be a Real Madrid starter. Um, so, but I guess that's a separate discussion from is there minutes available for him right now, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. You know, him and Odegaard are whether we want to admit it or not, because I know, I know that they're not identical positions I think I think we all know we can be convinced of that but they don't have to be in identical positions to compete with each other it's a very it's a very yeah. similar to like Isco doesn't have to be a pure winger to compete with Hazard and Vinicius right all right so um who knows man I don't I don't know what discussion we're going to be having two years from now <laughs> maybe we're gonna I don't know um I think Atraf leaving as soon as he did maybe maybe surprised us maybe it didn't but probably leaning on the on the side of it we were a little bit surprised that he left without a buyback or anything so yeah. um so this is we're not going to spoil the article more than we did um please everybody go and read it again it's called um the maturation of Takefusa Kubo at Mallorca and Matt has a lot of film dissected in that article a lot of talking points we didn't hit on uh, that this was just a teaser Matt thank you so much uh, we'll be back Tuesday 
for the for the last loan tracker of the season. Is that correct? Will it be the last? Yeah, one? season we'll review. Be... We'll uh, rank the loanees again, and it'll be fun. Season review, and uh, we'll we'll probably do something every Tuesday. I'm not sure what yet, and it's not like yeah. the break is that long. To be honest, I think La Liga will probably resume mid September, as far as we know. So it's not a huge break, and Champions League will be starting. So Matt, thanks. Take care, Halamari. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Village Viajes. My name is Grant Little, and this is the segment where I take you through the early life of a Real Madrid player to see how he arrived at the greatest club on earth. Today, we're taking a trip back to 1998 in Montevideo, Uruguay. Federico Valverde was hooked on football from the start. And I know this sounds like a cliche, but he always asked for footballs and football cleats instead of regular toys that normal kids ask for. In fact, at two years old, he was so obsessed with football, he convinced his dad to take a net and nail it in between the living room and the kitchen so he could practice indoors whenever he wanted to. Now, Fede practiced quite a bit and ended up ruining the plaster and the paint on the wall and putting holes in the walls and all kinds of stuff. And his parents decided that they needed to get him out of the house as soon as possible. So they entered him in the academy, Estudiantes de la Union, when he was only three years old. Now, the academy had a rule where you were only allowed to play when you were in official matches when you were six years or older. But Fede often got into different friendlies and exhibition matches at three years old playing with six-year-olds. Now, with Fede being that young, it sometimes caused some funny issues. His mom shared an anecdote about how he once was playing on the pitch and she had to literally drag him off, change his diaper, and then throw him back on so he could continue playing. He also scored a goal in a friendly for Estudiantes de la Union, and instead of celebrating, doing a little fist pump or anything, he just lifted his legs and dropped his pants and just revealed it all in celebration to the supporters. When Fede was four, he had a prophetic dream that his mom, Doris, described in a variety of interviews on Oz and Marca and Campo de Estrellas. He was four years old. He got up in the morning and said, Mom, Dad, I dreamt I was in a stadium. And everyone was screaming for me. They were all dressed in white and spoke differently than us. Now Valverde had another similar dream when he was around 10 or 11. And he said, Mom, that team I dreamt of so long ago was Real Madrid. Now, who knows if this is folklore or fate or destiny and if Fede believed in any of that. But his love for football never ceased. In 2008, Fede's mom took him to try out for Peñarol, one of the biggest, if not the biggest clubs in all of Uruguay. When he got there, all the kids were warming up and playing around, as kids do before these kind of tryouts. But he was shy and timid and ended up sitting up against a tree. Peñarol and Uruguayan legend Nestor Gonclaves, who was one of the youth coordinators at the time, came up to him and kind of asked, like, hey bud, you gonna get out here and play, or are you just gonna sit here? Immediately, Fede sprinted to the pitch, and showed Nestor Gonclavas exactly what he was going to do. He impressed Gonclavas so much, Gonclavas was talking about how he was one of those players that amazed you in a way that you could never forget. Fede got entered into the Peñarol Academy after that tryout, and earned the name El Pajarito, or the Little Bird, immediately upon arrival. And his mom, Doris, kind of thought that this was an insult, like making fun of his build or whatever, 
But Gunclavis was like, Doris, it's not an insult. He flies across the pitch so gracefully. Now, at 13, he was actually called up to the national team. And this is when Europe started to take notice of Fede. In 2015, he trained with Arsenal, but Arsenal gave a kind of low-ball offer, and Peñarol denied it, adding Fede to a list of players that Arsene Wenger almost signed. Chelsea, United, and Barca all were also interested, but didn't meet Peñarol's asking price, which they would soon come to regret as Fede went into the Sudamericano Under-17 tournament. He scored eight goals in seven games and impressed throughout the tournament. In 2015, he got called up to Peñarol's first team and was under the tutelage of idol Diego Forlan, who was also from the city of Montevideo. At 17, he won a starting spot halfway through the season at their winning break, and they went on to win the league together. He played in a U-17 game in South America, and this is when Uni Calafat, Real Madrid's international department boss, took notice of Fede Valverde. Immediately, the sporting department was on board. They're like, we need to sign this kid. But the medical department wasn't. They were worried about his build and kind of thought that he looked a bit malnourished and were worried about how he would adapt to Spain and if he could handle the buildup of games from La Liga, Copa del Rey, Champions League, etc. However, thankfully for all of us, the sporting department won out and so did Uni Calafat. And on his 18th birthday, Fede arrived in Madrid and became an instant starter for Castilla under Solari. After winning the silver ball with Uruguay at the U-20 World Cup and his great performances with Solari at Castilla, he eventually earned a loan deal to Deportivo La Coruña. And after a tough situation where he went through multiple coaches, a relegation battle, and a season-ending injury, he came back to Real Madrid as his loan deal ended. He started the 2019 preseason and immediately impressed Julian Lopetegui and was assigned to the first team. After impressing in preseason, we all kind of know the rest of the story. Julian Lopetegui's Real Madrid story was short and painful for him and the club, but I have a feeling that Federico Valverde's story is going to be much longer. He has already become a key clog in Zidane's midfield and a bit of a cult hero for Madridistas. When I think of Fede, I see the same unforgettable images over and over again. Him pounding the ground in excitement after Benzema tied the game off a Courtois header in added time against Valencia. Him walking off the pitch after saving the day in the Spanish Super Cup. And the Bernabeu chanting, Fede, 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 after his masterful display against PSG. Now, remember those dreams I talked about? Turns out they were a bit prophetic. And they're nowhere near finished yet. Who knows where El Pajarito's career will actually end up, but I see nothing but a bright future for Fede Valverde. Thank you all for joining me for this week's Village Viajes. Let me know whose story you would like to hear next. Adios. Para sacar la pelota, busca la contra. Al final sacó el balón como pudo. Queda suelta. Atención para que corra Morata. Qué buen control orientado. Morata. Bueno, 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 bueno. Cartulina roja para Fede Valverde.